Welcome to Clearly Quaker, an ongoing series of podcasts by Salem Quarterly Meeting, part of the Religious Society of Friends. Salem Quarterly Meeting is an association of seven Southern New Jersey Quaker meetings within Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. set this down and with your permission I'm gonna take my mask off since I'm about six feet from everybody I'd like to say good, good afternoon now and thank you so much for having me today to speak a little bit about myself and what I do here in Cumberland County 
I usually start out by saying, when I, when I speak, to say, I'm Jennifer Webb McCray, and if you are from Cumberland County, I am your Cumberland County prosecutor. When I say that, I say it because the prosecutor's office represents the people, and the people define what justice looks like in our community. So just to start out, to talk a little bit about, um, about who I am, um, I am a life resident of Cumberland County. I grew up in Vineland. I brought with me my mommy today, my mom, Gail Webb. And um, I thought it was interesting and appropriate to ask her to come today because she, her mother, Beatrice George, was a Quaker. And she grew up in Philadelphia and went to Friends Select in Philadelphia and graduated from there and uh, moved down to Vineland with my grandfather, George I. George, who was a real estate developer in that area. And being um, half African-American, half white, and being 52 years old, having a mom who met my father, I think, when she was a 10th grader in Vineland High School. So I was born in 1969, so that meant they met sometime around 1962. Um, I don't think I've ever told her this publicly. I think part of the reason that she was brave enough to be in an interracial relationship in a time where it probably was not as acceptable as it is today has something to do with her Quaker background and has something to do with my grandmother and my grandmother being ahead of her time in terms of speaking out about, about things that are right things that are just about righteousness. So thank you, Mommy, because I'm here today <laughs> because of you and your spirit and bravery. And we know that has something to do with my grandmother, Honeybee. And I know it has something to do with her Quaker upbringing. So I always wanted to be a lawyer. Um, most people you know, kind of meander around and say they want to do this, do that. I don't think I ever wanted to be anything else. And it really came from my parents and my grandparents telling me from a very young age, maybe from before I can remember, that I like to debate every point. I like to convince people that my way was the right way, which can be positive, but my mommy will probably say is sometimes controlling. Um, and I was lucky that I got to live my dream and become a lawyer, never wanted to do anything else. But it's because my family poured a great deal of time and resources to make sure that I had a lot of a good head start, let's say, to becoming what I wanted to do. I went to school at Violin uh, High. I'm very proud of my public school education and think that it's something that we need to fight for going into our 21st century, keeping public education robust and available to everyone. I went to uh, Glassboro State College. I am a legacy child, because my mom and dad both graduated from Glassboro State College. I was in the law and justice department there. Um, got a law and justice degree, and teach there now. So I'm really proud of being able to go back there and continue to interface with my mentors, as well as become a mentor for other uh, students at Rowan University. I went to Rutgers Camden in law school in Camden, New Jersey. Graduated from there in 1994. 
and was a lawyer by the time I was 25 years old. I don't, if I think back, it probably would have been beneficial to me to spend some time in the real world before becoming a lawyer at 25 years old because my grandfather would often tell me that I had a lot of, a lot of book knowledge, but maybe not common sense. And common sense comes from real life, lived experiences, failing, getting up, trying again, right? But, um, so it was, lawyer by the time I was 25 years old, I clerked for a judge. Some of you may know him, Judge Stanger, um, George Stanger from, uh, he, he was from Vineland, but he actually moved to the other side of the county and was from this area. And he became a lifelong mentor to me and placed in my head possibilities that I could possibly be the first African-American superior court judge in Cumberland County, which we still don't have. Um, but, but he placed me in a lot of positions that um, gave me the opportunity to be considered for the position that I'm in right now. He, placed, he put my name up for the ethics committee, which was a lot of work, but a very good, <laughs> primer for all of the right things to do if you want to be a good lawyer and the things to stay away from if you didn't want to get in trouble. And um, he also, you know, got me, told me to be active in a political party because that's one of the necessities to get an appointment like the one that I, that I hold right now and our bar association. I started my career as a public defender and I was up in Monmouth County married at the time with a little baby and was lucky. My grandmother used to say, my other grandmother, Adela Tony, used to say, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. Well, I was living up by the city and I was a fish out of water. I love open space. I love what we have to offer here in our beautiful idyllic county. And I got to come home, but it was by way of divorce as a single mom with a, with a little baby. But transferred down here and was a public defender for six and a half years. I don't know if everybody knows what a public defender does, but you represent, you're a criminal defense attorney, you represent indigent people, and it is one of the cornerstones of our American justice system that everyone, every American citizen, every person who is charged with a crime, and don't have to be an American citizen, is entitled to adequate legal representation. Now, there's been much debate on whether public defenders can deliver that, but it sets us apart from many countries around the world, and I would argue is one of the pieces that make our criminal justice system better. Not perfect, and I'll talk about that in a little while, but better. So I did that for six and a half years, and then I went into private practice, and I still did a fair amount of criminal defense work, municipal court work, but I started representing school boards, housing authorities, planning departments, and became very familiar with the way government works. And in 2010, I was 40 years old, and this opportunity to become prosecutor was presented to me. It was not something that I had ever considered for myself. Again, I came from the criminal defense bar, but um, upon reflection, it's been my works privilege, my, my work life's privilege to have this opportunity because I soon came to realize that it would give me a platform to shape what justice looks like in our community. So 
Um, in my mind, justice is not just a noun, it's a verb. It's something that we have to do every day. It's something that we have to act upon every day. It's something that we have to discuss every day. And it's something that we have to have a fidelity to, right? So being the first female to run my office, which happens to be the largest law firm in the county, we have 30 attorneys, including myself, uh, 40 detectives, they are all law enforcement officers, police officers, um, and the balance of our 115 person staff are victim witness advocates, as well as our support services, community justice, secretaries, um, paralegals that help make our office run. But I'm the first one in Cumberland County, I think it was in 248 years to hold that position. Um, first African-American, first female. So many, at the beginning of my, my tenure, many people would say, well, what does that mean? And I, I wasn't sure I knew how to answer that question, but I think it just meant that I came to the position with a different lens than anyone prior to me. Working mom, single mom for a time, I'm very lucky to have met my life partner and remarried and we just celebrated uh, 20 years of marriage and he has been an amazing father. My, my son is really lucky, he has two daddies, an amazing father to my son. I'm a mother of an African-American. I used to always say boy, but he's 23. And so I guess he's a man, although I still feel like I'm, my mom could tell you some stories about how I still feel like I'm raising a boy. Um, and I'm a person of faith, right? So all those things give me a different perspective on what justice might look like in our community or how justice has historically felt in our community. So just a little bit about the prosecutor's office. We prosecute all of the indictable crimes in the county. That means if you face more than six months in jail, you have to come through the prosecutor's office in Cumberland County. We get about 3,000 to 3,200 cases, and we prosecute about 12 to 1,400 of those cases every year. Some cases get dismissed because there's just not probable cause to prosecute them. Some cases get downgraded to municipal court. Some cases get diverted, but we prosecute about 1,200 of those cases. We also have an investigative function because we have a major crimes unit that goes out and works hand in hand with all of the police departments and state police to investigate violent crime, murders, kidnappings, um, anything that traditionally you'd face either life or um, over 20 years in prison, 10 years also, some of them the second degrees and, and those serious crimes. Now when I say serious crimes, I am very careful to always say that crimes that have been, been regarded as serious by, by our legislature, because if you are the victim of just a simple, you know, small theft of your pocketbook, that's a serious crime to you if that's the only crime you've ever experienced, right? But it, it usually doesn't rise to the level where someone's gonna be spending the rest of their life in jail. So we have that major crimes function. We also have a special victims unit, which again is a, a specialized unit that investigates uh, sexual crimes, and also crimes against children. So they work alongside and hand in hand with our police departments to investigate those crimes. 
we have an internal affairs function. So not only do we have our own internal affairs office, we have what's called, a, and it's the same group of people, Professional Standards Unit, PSU, which oversees the internal affairs function for our police departments in our community. The reason we need to do that is because if people don't have confidence in how we police ourselves, in our professionalism, society can break down in terms of confidence in the, just, in the justice system. So that is a very important part of our function at the prosecutor's office and a very important function to me because I work with them hand in hand almost every day. We have a community justice function, which is if I want to be known and left with at, known for leaving a legacy in my office, it will be for our community justice function because I'm gonna talk a little bit more later about why I think it's important not only for the prosecutor's office to be involved in prosecuting crime and holding those who are account accountable for committing crime, but we have an obligation to work to help, number one, children make healthy, positive choices and to deal with some of the issues that find their way into the criminal justice system that I would respectfully submit if we start to do better will transform how our society works and bring social justice into criminal justice. My, the way I, I practice, the way I live, the way I operate in business with my counterparts is rooted in my faith. Um, particularly in this job as prosecutor. I believe in the redemption of man. I believe that people should not be defined by their worst moments, and I would respectfully submit not by their very best moments. They really should be defined by how they live their life over a period of time. Um, so it's that dash in between your birth date and your death date that really matters. Um, and I think that's tied, I, I kind of, for myself, through my faith, say, am I, am I treating people and living my life in a way that shines Jesus' light every single day? My mom was a teacher for 35 years, and she said to me that she had one overarching rule in her classroom, which was to do no harm, which we know comes from the medicine too, right? But that's how I live my life and try to interact um, with everyone that I touch in my business and in my personal life as well. Um, I, I know that my pastor would say sometimes I fall short of the glory of God in the way that I do that, but in reflection and in the way I interact, I try to do that every day. As I've gotten older and more mature, I realize that means maybe sometimes taking a step back when I'm upset or angry about something before I speak, because we know that there's power in our words and the tongue can cut or it can affirm. affirm. So I try to do that at home and at work. So most of the time it seems a little easier at work than it does at home. Um, so my job is to hold people accountable for violations of the law. But the reality is that most folks will not spend the rest of their lives in jail. They will get out. And I will submit that we have a moral obligation to be part of allowing folks to pay their debt to society, 
and then reintegrate into society and enjoy the benefits, as well as the obligations of being a citizen in this great country. And we have not done that well in criminal justice for a long time. A lot of times when people become, they go to jail, they come out, they are by way of their conviction, and I would argue sometimes the scarlet letter that they wear, they are marginalized, they are restricted, and oftentimes restricted in ways where they find themselves not being able to support their families. And then sometimes that is a contributor to why they recidivate and commit crime. So I feel like it's my moral obligation to start talking about the issues that sometimes marginalize people and think, think of ways where we can help people once they pay their debt to society to come out and reintegrate into society. The NAACP, which I'm a part, a member of, um, worked really hard for the ban the box law, which then, when people have a criminal record, they can't ask that question on applications. It's only after their, the hiring process, when they get to the point where they're doing the background checks, where that will come up. Um, and that is a huge way to get people to at least have that second opportunity to get a look for who they are at that time, not what they did maybe one of the worst things that they um, did in their life. At the prosecutor's office, we are working on ways to collaborate with prevention and intervention groups and groups that deal with drug and mental health issues, private and both government agencies, to keep individuals from coming into the criminal justice system. We work on programs like Recovery on Wheels, which is out in the community at least once a week. It's a program that has recovery coaches that meet people where they are and when they are ready to get into treatment. And we have been pretty successful in getting people treatment on demand. Um, and I'll talk about that for a minute here because I think it kind of defines some of the other things I'm going to talk about. For too many years, our, our society has worked in a way where we don't deal with problems early and often when they're cost effective to deal with. We ignore them. They become crises. And when we can't figure out how to deal with them, they become criminal justice issues. I would submit to all of you that it is our moral obligation to make sure that the county jail is not the drug treatment detox center or the site, the crisis center. Oftentimes today when people need help with addiction or they need help with a mental health crisis that they're suffering, they can't get the services that they need. It, the bars to it are the cost of it because many people are as fortunate to have the type of health insurance that me and my mom were talking about in the car, where I said that's why her and my dad probably are getting as old as they are because they go to every doctor's appointment and <laughs> get the help that they need when they need it. Um, and if dealing, you know, having dealt with addiction in our family, we know that um, there are not there are not um, robust addiction services in the community as they should be. Mm -hmm. And when we try to make those things happen in our community, we often are faced with the not in my backyard attitude. And I would argue that, you know, if I ask the question here, has anyone had a family member deal with addiction? 
most of us would raise our hand, right? Um, and the, the reality is that most people that are dealing with addiction will come back home. And if we don't create robust recovery services in our community and recovery communities, because when people can't go to the bar anymore, they have to have people who are doing the same things they're doing to you know, live robust lives, have social outlets, and what have you. So we have a moral obligation to build out recovery and mental health services right here in our community. When we don't, they end up in the jail. We all pay a law enforcement premium when that happens. Intervention and prevention is about a third or less of the cost that we pay, that we pay when we jail people because we have not addressed their issues. When we jail them, we pay for their medical, we pay for the cost per day for all of the law enforcement people that are um, you know, there making sure that they don't get out of the jail. And it's just madness to be doing the same thing, expecting a different result. So we're working very hard with Recovery on Wheels to make sure that we are out in the community every week. They go to Brown Christian Noble and then a township on the fourth week so that when people are ready to get help, we can get them into treatment. And we have a pretty, a very good track record. Um, we also do knock and talk. So does anybody, does everybody know what Narcan is? Narcan is a substance that if someone has overdosed and their heart stops, you pump them with Narcan and it starts their heart up again. What we started to see when we started to track the Narcan deployments that were being done by law enforcement, people were being Narcan four and five times. Um, that's the extreme, but you'd be surprised how many people are Narcan more than once. That means basically we brought them back from the dead more than one time. So now we have recovery coaches stand alongside police officers and do knock and talks for our Narcan deployments, just letting them know the services that we have in the community and that when they're ready, we can get them the treatment. So we're, we've been doing the knock and talks now for about, I want to say two years, and COVID slowed us down a little bit, but I hope to be able to tell a story in a couple years that it's been very successful. We've helped at least 180 people though get into treatment with recovery on wheels. We also have youth programs that build protective factors. We trained and implemented anti-gang curriculum to build protective factors so that we can disrupt the need to enter gangs. Oftentimes people enter gangs because they have a lack of um, self, a lack of family because of social issues going on in the family. And they want to do to have what we all have. Like I love spending time with my mommy. I love spending time with my family. And they don't feel that at home. So when they don't feel it at home, they find it somewhere else. Um, so we work with the school systems throughout the county to um, train. It's called the Phoenix Curriculum School Professionals, so that we can fund after-school programs to build up all of the protective factors, which is things like if you find a meaningful mentor, you are, like, I think this statistic is five times less likely to end up charged with a crime by the time you are 25, if you have one strong mentor in your life. So we want kids to know that, and we want to be part of that solution. So we fund programs like that. We also have implemented a program called UTIC, which is Trauma-Informed Protocol. Now, 
the, the national program is called Handle with Care, but the school systems didn't like that because they have a program on how they handle kids who are getting out of control that's called Handle with Care. So we called ours Youth Tip Trauma-Informed Protocol. But what that is is that we work with our school systems to identify kids who have come into contact with police officers for 11 factors. And I can't call them all, all off off the top of my head, but it would be if there's a death in the family, if there's an overdose in the family, if there's domestic violence in the family, if a violent crime has been committed and the police encounter a child at that scene. The, the police officers then go back, they go, they do a form, but we're, I got a big grant, so we're gonna try to make this electronic. They let the school uh, liaison know that that child has experienced a traumatic event, and then the, the school notifies the teachers and the guidance counselors. The school professionals don't know what the traumatic event is. They just know that the child has experienced a traumatic event. And the reason that's important is that we've seen over the course of years that traumatic events make kids act out. And those acting out scenes oftentimes can result in discipline that they get, get kids suspended or kicked out of school or because maybe their home life is just so crazy they're not turning in their homework, things of that nature. So this program is designed to eradicate the school to prison pipeline by letting the teachers know that a traumatic event has happened and to handle that child with care. So maybe if they haven't turned in their homework, we don't ding them, we give them another chance. Maybe if they're acting out, we send them to the guidance counselor who also knows that the child has experienced a traumatic event rather than suspending that child. Because suspension leads to expulsion and low math, low literacy scores and things of that nature lead to lives, not all the time, but there is a strong correlation between the individuals who are in prison having low literacy, reading literacy, low math literacy, and a track record of acting out in school. So we know that school to prison pipeline is real, and we want to be part of making sure that we eradicate it. Because as Frederick Douglass said, it is much easier to build strong men and women than to repair them. So that's another program that we're doing. We also have diversionary programs that we're working on. We have the Station House Adjustment Program, which is a program for kids if they do something that is not the, the things that kids do, you know, they, they do criminal mischief. They might break into an empty building, things of that nature. We station out suggest them versus bringing them deeper into our system. So in my tenure, when I got there, we noticed that the police officers were not using that as robustly as they should. So we track the numbers, and I'm happy to say that we've increased them throughout our county by 400%, which that means we're keeping kids out of our system rather than pulling them deeper into our system. Once you do that, now they have a record, and the next time they do something stupid, they are treated more harshly. So that's why it's important to have diversionary programs like the Station House Adjustment Program. We also have a Child Advocacy Center that I'm very proud of. Um, if children are victims of crime or their families are victims of crime, we have linked up with SERVE, which is out of the Center for Family Guidance. 
People, kids who are victims of, of crime are interviewed at a separate place than a police station because we often know that when they see authority, they feel like they have to please us and that can not be good in criminal justice because sometimes they tell us what they think we want to hear than what actually happened. So there's a specific building that when they are a victim of crime that we have child-friendly interview rooms. They never see police officers with firearms on and they're treated differently than adults. Um, in addition, we because we were hooked up with SERV, they also receive counseling at this center. Um, we have specially trained counselors that work with children all the time. We also have in that center a room which is set up like a courtroom. And we, when we're prepping child witnesses, we can take them there so that, can you imagine being seven, five, 12, and walking to a courtroom for the first time and have this many people sitting watching you and have to testify? That in and of itself could be a traumatic event. So we have a room set up like a courtroom to show where the judge is going to sit, where they're going to sit, where the jury will be, so that they are not re-victimized and traumatized by our system. We started that back in, we opened it back, I believe it was December of 2019. And we were a little kind of set off course by COVID, but we are back on course and they are back in at the center working with people and families. We also have funded youth programs like Follow Me and Lead, which is again a prevention and intervention program. The Euphoria Game Zone, which is a program that we do over in Bridgeton, where kids just come and they play. They play games, they play video games, they interact with trained mentors, and it gives them something to do. And we work with our police departments and community organizations in the three cities to do play streets, which is just summer activity where kids get to interact with our police officers, with other community organizations, and do fun things in the community. We also have gotten a grant to map all of the schools in our community. Um, so, and the purpose is called Stop School Violence, and the purpose of mapping the schools is that we want to prevent the danger that we would encounter if we unfortunately had an active shooter. What I learned from going to a program about the Newtown incident is that when there is an active shooter, the issue is really, you have to, the seconds matter, you have to immobilize that shooter because if you don't, it's just going to be more carnage. So mapping the schools allows all of the police officers who respond, and in any county of our size, if we had an active shooter situation, it would be an all-hands-on event. Officers would be coming from Mount Mission and Millville, as well as the state police. But if an officer is coming, he has to know the school. And the mapping program allows them to pull up a map on their phone and be directed by a dispatcher or someone from the school to where the problem is immediately. And when seconds matter, that's really super important. In addition to that, we wrote into that grant an anonymous tip line for students. So my hope is that by the end of this year or early 2022, we will have implemented, like we have for the police and like we have in my office, an anonymous tip line that students, parents, 
administrators all can put information in and the principals, the superintendents, the people that need to know will be able to see them in real time. Oftentimes issues like bullying and intimidation in school lead to bigger events like active shooters, unfortunately, like bomb threats. So we want to give children the, the way to be able to safely report things that are happening to them that unfortunately now don't only happen at school but because of social media, they don't leave it at school. It, take, it follows them home so that they can report information in a safe way. We have um, a grant recovery, uh, re a grief recovery support group as well. So this is something I'm super proud of. We were a, my um, old vic director of victim witness retired and she's known throughout our state for her victim witness advocacy. She serves on the Violent Crimes Compensation Board as one of the board members. And I don't, I, I'm gonna take credit for it, but it really was her idea. Her and my new director of victim witness went and got trained in grief recovery support. So now we can offer counseling. We used to do it before COVID in group counseling sessions, um, but now we have, they can do individual video counseling for victims of violent crime who either suffer violent crime in our community or, you know, they, they have a connection to someone who has suffered a, a, a violent incident. I'm happy to report just yesterday I found out that we are going to be able to extend that grief recovery method support to people who have survived someone dying of an overdose. And um, we, can't, we, couldn't, we were not allowed to fund that through the grant that we have for um, violent crime, but now we will be able to um, help people who have families, really, who have experienced the loss of a loved one to addiction. And the goal is to just basically deal with the trauma that leads to alcoholism, sometimes leads to you know, mental health crisis, sometimes leads to drug addiction, that then find their way into the criminal justice system. So more to report on that, hopefully, when I come back. Um, let's see. Finally, this is another really cool program that started, just started, but I want you guys to tell the story in the community. We just launched a special needs registry. Um, oftentimes, police officers are called to events and they don't know what they're encountering. But if they can encounter someone who's deaf, who's not responding to their commands, they're left to interpret, are they not responding to their commands because they're going to do something dangerous? Or is it they don't know the person can't hear. Or it could be they're responding to someone who has autism, who might respond differently to commands than we all would, right? So now we have a special needs registry that's implemented throughout the, the, the county, all of the police departments, as well as our state police barracks. You can call in, or you can register your loved one or yourself, and the police is it, put in the dispatch, so when the police respond to either that person because that name comes up or to that location, they know there is someone there with a special need and they can respond appropriately as a result of that. So I ask that you tell that story in our community because um, we've had some very tragic events. 
I did, I led the committee for the Attorney General that looked at police response to emotionally disturbed persons. And first thing was we realized we shouldn't call them emotionally disturbed persons. We should call them people who are you know, suffering from a mental health crisis, right? But what we learned was astonishingly, at least 25% of the officer-involved shootings that ended in death were actually caused for a mental health crisis. So that's why it's so important that we work on this issue, that they're aware that they might respond, be responding to an event like that. And also we work on building up robust mental health services in our community. <clears throat> Finally, we do a back to school initiative. We haven't been able to do it for the last few years because of COVID, but I started this when I came in 2010. We go to about two, over 25 schools in our community and we put out tables and we let the community know what the prosecutor's office can offer them. We have people who can come out and talk to parents about internet safety, talk to kids about internet safety, talk about bullying, talk about the danger signs of gangs, or danger of gangs, the signs of alcohol and drug abuse, bullying, and bias crimes. So we do that every year. I love to do it. I don't need to do it as much as I want anymore. But it's just a way to interact with the community, let them know we're actually part of the community because the employees look forward to it and they usually do it in their hometowns and pass out information that keeps people safe. So those are some of the initiatives that we've done at the prosecutor's office that I'm proud of. Um, there are others, uh, but it's just really part of the way we do business now to realize that we can't just arrest our way out of the problems that we experience in criminal justice. We have to be partners on front, with front-end stakeholders because we're all in this together. And again, like I said, if we keep doing the same thing that we've been doing that hasn't worked, we're going to continue to experience the same results. I want to close by talking a little bit about the social justice issues that I was reminded I should talk about. Um, obviously, in the wake of the George Floyd matter, which is just interestingly one of many, but seemed to bring our country to a point where maybe we're having another racial awakening and wanting to, realizing that we need, need to do things differently. That, I think, juxtaposed against this world pandemic that is COVID, which I would argue laid bare many of the social inequities in healthcare, in the workplace, um, in schooling, because I would say that, you know, we can look to see who, who are dying at higher rates with respect to COVID. Black and brown people, poor people are dying at higher, higher rates. Um, if we look to see who's lost their jobs and who could still go to work, people who are working people who work with their hands, who work in the service industries, who work in the travel industry, generally people of maybe less education, lower means, have suffered disproportionately to someone like, like myself who was able to continue doing what I, what I was called to do uh, virtually. Um, so we saw those same disparities there. 
Those two things, juxtaposing against each other, I think have gotten conversations going that need to be happening in this country. I know that with George Floyd, the, everywhere I went, I would be faced with defund the police. And um, I think that that is a very bad. I, I tend to agree with a lot of the things that pro progressives are trying to do. And I just think that's a very bad marketing strategy to fund the police. Um, when you talk to the people who say that they support that slogan, they say they're doing it because they realize that they have to be so radical to just meet somewhere in the middle and get the gains that they want. But I would argue to you that a better slogan would be reimagining public safety. So, it is an absolute, in my mind, it is an absolute fact that we need to be talking about reallocating resources in our, in society. Um, it is right and just to shine the light on the criminal justice system right now. If you look at our prisons, no one could argue with the fact that black men have been disproportionately impacted by the policies and practices that um, started to come up in the 1980s with how we were going to deal with criminal justice. And we have to deal with that. But I also say everywhere I can go that if we don't deal with the inequities in society, we will continue to deal with the inequities in the criminal justice system. If we don't start talking about housing equality, if we don't make a vested commitment to making sure that our public schools are as good as our private schools, if we don't start talking about some of the healthcare disparities that still are, you know, manifested in, in the outcomes for poor people or people of color in our system, we're never going to change the criminal justice system because they all are intricately woven together and we have to work together to do something different. I often feel like when I get up in the morning that I'm going, fighting the tide of the ocean and not making a difference. But I have honed, I think, my thoughts and my passions about changing what we're experiencing in the criminal justice system by humbling myself enough to realize that while law enforcement should be recognized for what they do and um, you know, paid a fair wage for what they do, we have to start taking some of the dollars that we spend in, in the back end system, like the correction system, like what, you know, the, the, what we pay police officers, and put some of that money into the front end system, into the intervention, into the prevention system, that will help people with all of the social ills that if ignored end up in my back or on my desk. So if I would leave you with anything, and I think I got a soft crowd here, sometimes it's harder to talk to people about this issue. <laughs> um, because somehow we've equated um, you know, support for law enforcement and patriotism with not if you don't, if if you're, if you support them, you don't support reallocating resources. And I, I would argue that you can do both, because the police officers I talk to, 
they're tired of showing up at a parent's house because the parent says, I called you because little Joey won't listen to me. They're tired of showing up to the same person's house who's been through three or four mental health crises because our system has not figured out how to really deal with that issue on a daily basis and get people the medicine that they need to address it. And um, I, you know, this is very controversial, but you know, we have a system where we don't want to commit people when they really need help. And what we see in our system is people calling saying, I want to commit suicide by cop because I can't deal with what I'm dealing with. And eventually they're successful. And when they're successful, I would argue that we all have because I can think of one very high, high profile case in Milbo where that's exactly what the gentleman said he was going to do and it kept taking him to crisis and crisis kept kicking him out. So one day he was successful. Now I got a police officer whose life has been forever changed. We got someone whose family has been impacted by the death of their loved one. And we're all paying for it because the lawsuits that have come from it will result in payouts or lawyers' fees. So if we don't start doing something different and talking about controversial issues and talking about how we fix them, we're just going to end up, I'm going to be talking about the same thing 10 years from now. So I think this crowd is probably the most appropriate crowd to, to, to dialogue about these issues and really create that social change that needs to happen in society so that we can be better together. So, thank you so much for having me come talk today. I just had a question. Um, I'm really, uh, um, I'm really glad you, you brought up mental health, health and stuff. Um, I heard a statistic. I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was something like upwards of 80 or maybe even 90 percent of homeless people have uh, mental health issues. I don't know if that's exactly where you work, or whatever. But I was wondering if you had any programs trying to help that. Well, um, I would. I don't have any specific programs at my office that that deal with that, but we obviously know that there is a strong correlation between homelessness and mental health, right? I would say, I, I don't I don't know what the statistic is, but I would. I think it would be a safe bet to say that there's a higher propensity for that population to have mental health issues. So I would tie that to our, you know, housing inequities that you know we, we experience in this country, and where where it rolls into what I do is that we know that homeless people are far more subject to victimization and being taken advantage of than um, you know obviously people who can get shelter and, and can retreat to their homes. So yes, it's tied into. Um, those what I would call front end systems and being really helping and making sure that we're supporting them so people can get the help that they need. I'm really super proud of that. I take no credit for it, but we should all be proud of the fact that um, Pastor Robin Weinstein's group is doing so many housing initiatives 
the Code Blue, um, the initiative to, to the, the nonprofit initiative to build housing in our community. Um, and it's really a poverty issue too. You know, the, the cost, even in a beautiful place like Cumberland County where the cost of living is lower, if you're not making, um, if you live below the poverty line, it's hard to afford safe housing. So that, those are issues that we all have to be working on. First part, diabetics. If you're registering, uh, when I first heard uh, the George Floyd case, and I heard, okay, it would be a non-compliant, that's what I was thinking. Low blood sugar can make a perfectly normal, compliant, reasonable person unreasonable. And that's I think cops didn't think of that. I mean, now it turns out I was wrong, but I know from uh, experience, I was a social worker in Philly, and I had a client like that. His blood sugar, by rights, he should have been unconscious. But we uh, fortunately, I called paramedics, they came, they identified the problem, gave him a little bit of sugar, and the guy was fine. But, too often, police get called because somebody's acting crazy, and it's a diabetic with low blood sugar. So, but the bigger question that I had, my son pointed out to me. Uh, we lived in suburban Camden County, and town was 99% white, and the rest were Asian. And, but yet, you go to municipal court uh, on court night, and the courtroom is majority black and brown. And his argument was the cops are getting quotas, whether they call it a quota, whether they call it gold, they got to bring in so many, yeah, so many tickets. And they don't want to get the local people. So who do they get? They got, you know, it's the, the other people. Somebody's got to get a ticket, well, it's going to be there. And that feeds, you see where I'm going, that feeds a cycle. And black people say, every time I drive down the street, I get pulled over for things that, other, people, other drivers are doing, and nobody, you know, they don't get pulled over, I do. So, it escalates. Is there something that can be done to take a look at this ratio and say, gee, how come we've got this disparity? How come all the people that are getting pulled over for driving five miles an hour over the speed limit are disproportionately minorities. So, quotas are illegal, right? right? But obviously, even if you don't have quotas, if there's, you know, there's pressure to make sure that, I mean, if we had a police officer who had no tickets, he'd say, what are you doing on, on night if you're a right. traffic officer, right? But 
I think what you're kind of getting at is that there are a lot of ways where, you know, we know that there was a time where protectural stocks for people of color, for people black male, was very commonplace. Right. So, um, if anybody can recall, maybe back, it was before, in the 2000s, there was a lot of litigation with the state troopers with respect to the highways and black men being pulled over disproportionately. Now we keep statistics about that. So we know when the state call in cases, we know is it black males, is it females, what have you. So there has been movement. But driving while about black is a real thing. Yeah. You know, I've heard my grandfather talk about it, I've heard my dad talk about it. Um, I worry about it with my son. Um, but what I'm even more concerned about, and where we have all have a role to play, is the fact that that manifestation of pulling people over more often is really implicit bias. It's, you know, and implicit bias is different than discrimination, okay? So most of us don't want to feel that we're racist in any way or that we discriminate against people, but what we're trying to work on with police officers, with prosecutors, and we should be working on in the community is this innate feeling by everything that we see that black men are somehow, or people of color, or black men in particular, are somehow more dangerous, are somehow more likely to violate the law. That then manifests itself into the suspiciousness that police officers have about them as opposed to other people, right? And again, I'm talking about this larger issue is that police officers are just us. They're, they're like us. Teachers are just like us, right? And that's why we have to dispel these myths and we have to talk about race, race, reconciliation, and the issues that make us believe implicitly that someone that's different than us is more dangerous And you know, ways we can do it, calling out the media. They call me all the time, they want pictures. They want uh, the pictures of people when they um, get arrested at the jail. I don't give out those pictures. Now, if they overed me for those pictures, we might have to give them out if they were in our, in our um, files. Over it is the Open Public Record Act. But I just don't give them out because unless I have a reason to give out an, a, a person's picture, because we're looking for them, why do I want to perpetuate this perception that it's only black males who are dangerous? But they are still getting arrested at a higher rate than the general population. So there's small things that we can do over time, and we are doing that. We're lucky to have an attorney general, um, Grewal, who just left, who was very progressive, who started mandating that we talk about these types of things and that we train on these types of things. All prosecutors have been trained in implicit bias. We are training our police departments. Just so that we start this conversation, because the issue that you're bringing up is a valid point, and a lot of people don't believe that it's a valid point, but it is happening. Okay, no, I, I know, I know it, but what I'm saying is that, if you look at the result of that, when you get young black men to get pulled over repeatedly, and then they get angry, and then they respond with anger, and then oh, that's good. Yeah, exactly. Okay. 
So, you know, black mothers like myself tell, tell our sons, you know, you have to, you, you cannot be angry in that situation. You being angry in that situation could end up in you being shot. Right. Yeah. It, we saw it in Philando Castillo. Um, but obviously there's, yes, there's right. anger, and it's something that we know innately happens. And even when I, you know, I know that it's better than it was, my gut, my, my feeling of wanting to protect my son says, you, you don't have the same rights and privileges that someone else would. My son is 23 years old. I live in Vineland. Um, I live in a very nice community. Um, he, he, his car was broke down and he wanted to go to a friend's house that was out, way outside of our community. And he left the house at like 10 o'clock at night. And maybe he was 22 at the time. And he said, I'm just going to walk back when I'm done. And I said to him, I will come pick you up. I don't want you walking home. Because I, he's lived there since he was in fourth grade. He knows these people. But right now, he's 6'5". He has dreadlocks down here. And I was afraid that if he walked home at 2 o'clock in the morning, somebody would think that he did not belong here and something would happen to him. That's as an intellectual, I know that's crazy, but that's my truth. And I have a reason to feel that way. And I'm, I feel privileged that I have the opportunity to be in a position that can maybe help change that. But again, we all have to help change that. We, we have to all be part of that solution. Yeah. But we're, the ways we're trying to do it as law enforcement executives is we do keep those statistics. We do, from time to time, look at who is a police officer arresting? Where are they patrolling? And those type of things to try to um, mitigate what we know has been happening for a long time. So are you able to go to a department and say, hey, your statistics are really bad? And, yes. and maybe throw some things Well, what ends up happening, normally how this happens is someone like the ACLU would, or um, the Justice Department starts to see trends, and they sue a police, uh, a police department. They tend to be big cities like Chicago, New York, and they put in monitors. We haven't had to do that here, but I have had to put in monitors for things like internal affairs because we started to see you know, complaints in certain areas. We have something now called the early warning system. So a, a police officer who has too many internal affairs complaints gets on our early warning system. And it's, it's not necessarily always discipline. It could be mentoring. It could be um, the supervisors retraining so that we don't start to see these trends that get out of control because sometimes they don't know what they're, that they're doing something wrong. Sometimes they do. And we need them to know that check is there to get them back. That is on. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Any other questions? Why, again, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, last time I heard you speak publicly, we were just beginning the jail reform in New Jersey. Yeah. I wonder if you could speak to how that has gone. I think that bail reform has been a success. Um, but I have caveats. Um, we've seen for those of you who don't know what bail reform is, in 2017, New Jersey eliminated cash bail. So that people are no longer held on a cash bond. For the most part, they're held based on 
their uh, a risk assessment tool, which is an objective, scholastic tool that looks at their um, the nature of their crime, their prior criminal history, their prior history of appearing for court, and it gives them a score. Now the state is able to move for what we call pre-trial detention, which means that they will be detained pending their trial, um, based upon those things, the offense that they're facing and their dangerousness to the community, really. If we are successful in detaining them, it's a hearing that we have to go through where we have to establish probable cause with the judge. They stay in jail until they are tried or until they resolve their case. It eliminated people being in jail because they couldn't afford to get out of jail, um, which we know would be if I, if I got charged with a crime and had a $100,000 bond because I'm blessed to have college-educated parents and my husband you know, has a pension, I would probably be able to raise the money to get out of jail. But poor people can't do that. So we saw a lot of poor people sit in jail, even on minor crimes, because they just could not afford the bond. So this system has eliminated that, and it has reduced our jail population. We have not seen the reductions at as great as maybe some of the more affluent counties, and I really think that's tied to the poverty that we have here. Um, despite how beautiful it is, we're the poorest county in the state, and we have some of the, um, you know, some of those characteristics that come with poverty high crime in pocketed areas, and uh, our fair share of violent crimes, right? So the good news is that I do think it's working to have the appropriate people jailed pending trial. Where I think we have to tweak it is with respect to what it's done and what it's done in getting the cooperation of the community to stop crime. And what I mean by that is that under the old system that was cash bail, we weren't required to play our case out to establish that probable cause within days. We would normally not usually have to do that until we got the person indicted and were closer to a trial, right? But criminal with criminal justice reform also became came speedy trial reform as well. So now, if we want to detain a person, we have to give them the police reports within, um, usually like that hearing, will, the, the detention hearing will happen within um, eight days or so, right? So from my criminal defense background, that's a good thing because people should be able to face their accusers and if they got to spend time in jail, the state should have to tell them why we're detaining them. They get a copy of the police reports. But from the prosecution end, now, the person who has, the state submits, committed a violent crime, knows who their accusers are within days. So the community has started to realize that. So they're now afraid to come forward and say, I saw, you know, Joe, John Doe shoot the victim because they know the person's gonna know within a very short amount of time. So what we've experienced is, an, I would say, an uptick in witness intimidation We've had a couple cases where defendants have um, put information out on social media as a form of intimidation, um, which we've prosecuted, but it's 
it's not been our friend in getting the community to come forward to solve crime. We had that very high profile mass shooting, um, and I can't even really like say mass shooting in Cumberland County. Um, in Fairfield, we know who the players are, but because of our criminal justice system, we have to be able to establish that in court. And we need the witnesses to do that. The witnesses oftentimes are scared to come forward because they're afraid that their families are gonna suffer retaliation. Um, so I, I think that it's overall, it's been a success and I would still endorse it and I would do it again. But I think that we're gonna have to revisit that issue of putting information out there so quickly because for the communities that are suffering from this type of crime, this type of intimidation, they are not getting any better with a result, you know, as a result of the fact that people just will not come forward and talk to us. We try to give them means to do it. We, you know, some of the crimes that we've recently solved, it's because people have come forward with the anonymous information and then we were able to electronically with cameras, with phones and things of those nature. Um, wrap it together, right? But there's certain things that we still need a body to sit in a chair in the courtroom and say, I saw so-and-so pull the trigger. And those things, it, it's getting harder to get people to come forward. Mm -hmm. So, success, but we still need to work on it. Thank you. Anything else? Well, thank you so much for having me again. Thank you for listening to Clearly Quaker. We hope you have found this podcast thought-provoking. If you have questions or comments or would like to learn more about South Jersey Quakers, reach us at salemquarter.net.